A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 136 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as on Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get the show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman, and with me like the 501st when Vader draws into port, the EU guru himself, the count of two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hello, all. Don't mind the frog in my throat. It's only half as big as the one outside Jabba's palace. <laughs> I guess that's saying something. I mean, isn't everything at Jabba's palace pretty big? <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I kind of feel like half the time I'm choking when I'm coughing, so it's going to be an interesting episode unless I'm really, really good at the mute button. <laughs> well, okay, I, I take it back. It'll be an interesting episode for you, editing okay. out all the coughing, but I will, I will try to be prodigious with my use of mute. <laughs> Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we ponder Hayden Blackman's Darth Vader and the Lost Command by Dark Horse Comics, issues 1 through 5. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'd like to give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. This is an odd one, I must say. We weren't quite sure what to expect when it first came out. It's written by Hayden Blackman, which is good news, because usually he does pretty well with Star Wars storytelling. Uh, well, as assuming that you like the type that I like. Uh, I was a big fan of The Force Unleashed 1 and 2, and those are Hayden Blackman creations, and some despised them. Um, but I particularly usually like his work, and in this case, we do have something that's a little odd, I must say. I don't think it's the strongest of the Darth Vader series, though it never reaches the depths of crapola of Darth Vader in the Ninth Assassin, a.k.a. Darth Vader in the Lack of Plot, as we called it. Um, but it's one of these that, just like what we were dealing with in our previous two episodes without Castle of the Broken Ring from Legacy Volume 2, this is a series where it suffers greatly, though maybe not as much so as Outcast of the Broken Ring, because of its artwork. It's a series that features artwork by Rick Leonardi, and honestly, it's a mess. Uh, again, it's lack of detail in a lot of places. Uh, the ships and such look like 
they were just drawn usually in outline, very minimalist type of approach to it, uh, as if they're all basically made of plastic without a lot of detail, like you'd expect from, say, a toy back in the, say, 60s and 70s versus now, what they can do with computer scanning and whatnot. Um, and the faces, not counting Vader's face that has reflections all the time, but, I mean, just the faces of most of the male human characters, um, they kind of look like they're made from, again, as we said before, either mashed potatoes or they were drawn and somebody was like drawing as they were riding in a car over bumps and they forgot to go back and ever smooth anything out. Um, it's definitely one where the artwork detracts from the story. Story-wise, the biggest hiccup for me, honestly, was the fact that it centers around Vader going after Garroch Tarkin, the son of Wilhuff Tarkin. And over all the decades of stories we've had that involve Tarkin or Lady Tarkin and these connections with the Tarkin family, just like Marvel loved to do stuff with the Tag family, for instance, we'd never heard of him before. He was invented for this story. And it seems a little odd. That would be almost like all of a sudden adding a child for Lando in the era of The Empire Strikes Back and just saying, oh, well, we just never saw him off screen. Kind of like with Rota the Hutt or Rota the Hutt, you know, Pidunky, with Jabba back in the Clone Wars film. It feels weird to have him in here. Now, it's several years now to digest all of this and taking that as a given, not something weird and tossed in there. It's still an odd story, uh, but it's definitely not, I would say, a bad story. Kind of cruddy art, but story-wise, I think it works. It didn't work as individual issues reading them a month apart, but reading them as a whole, I think it's okay. Yeah, I, I think that's the key point there was was when I was reading it one individual issue at a time, it was a little confusing, a little thrown off. But rereading it, I, I actually have to admit, I liked it a lot more. I think that it did what Darth Vader in a lack of plots tried to. Um, I think the reason why we never heard of this target, and I think the plot for this story gives a good reason as to why, uh, why that one individual child would be wanted to be forgotten by not just Tarkin, but the entire empire. I thought that was an interesting, uh, twist. I like the twist at the end. You know, for once though, the art didn't bother me. I mean, I, I do understand what you're saying, but I don't know something about the way everything was drawn in this. I could get past it real quick. It wasn't something that I hung up on like I did with Legacy Volume 2. Um, I, I mean, I think for me, the, 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 about the art, the part that really drew me more away was the dream sequences. Those were the ones that really felt the least amount of detail drawn to it. But I, I you know, I question, is this the part of, of, you know, what you get? Uh, when you have a separate penciler, you have a separate inker and a separate colorist. Um, you know, when you have three different people working on the art, I kind of wonder if this is like one of those things that you may sometimes get when you have individuals that may or may not work that, that often together. Um, cause it kind of had this feeling, especially with the dream sequences, you know, like, like people were just afraid to tread on someone else's toes. Like, Hey, Anakin doesn't have any eyeballs in this one scene. Yeah, well, we'll just put the color in anyway, you know, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I liked what it did for Darth Vader. This was the Darth Vader story. This one reminded me a lot of, uh, Okay, here's one. The Delray Sampler. I just I just downloaded that and I was going through it and the uh parts for Lord of the Sith. Uh Lords of the Sith. Oh man, it was it was in Vader's head and it totally reminded me of uh, you know, the the Rise and Fall or no no not Rise and Fall, the Rise of Dark Lord. Uh, 
the one right after Revenge of the Sith. Dark Lord, The Rise of Darth Vader. It's both. Yes, okay, I was close. (laughs) That one, yes, exactly. Well, that one, you know, it gave you this whole, he's a Frankenstein's monster kind of feel and stuff. And this one, you know, it starts out with that dream sequence, and then it goes to him in the chamber and being worked on and stuff. And I liked how, you know, there's this little comment that he makes about, you know, reschedule me again. Like, you know, he's, he's perfecting, you know, his suit. And he's constantly going through all that stuff. Well, you know, I I literally just read that little excerpt from the sampler about, you know, inside Vader's mind. And I don't know, some of them are, but having that insight from that sampler going into this really, like, made me click into Vader. You know, I mean, when this first came out, it was kind of like, eh, another Darth Vader comic. Yeah, okay. But now going back on it, I'm like, I don't know. Maybe it's something with Rebels coming up and stuff. I'm more intrigued about Darth Vader more and more every day. Uh, you know, I mean, we've seen where he was going to come. We were, you know, wondering when he was going to fall with the films and stuff. But now that he's fallen, you know, and that was one of the things that the, the Rise of Darth Vader book did so well was, you know, that it, it showed the fact that he was overcoming obstacles and, and, and becoming stronger, you know. And this comic, too, it, it's really cool about how in the end, the way he, you know, the way he tackles the problem was really interesting. And I don't know, for me, I love the way that he's interacting with the fellow troopers and stuff and the there's another uh, commander that's also sent with him. And he's like, I don't need a watchdog. And Palpatine's like, we'll see. I, I just, the whole plot of this really worked for me for the Vader. I really liked that angle. And I was able to really jive in on it for once, you know, and, and the art while at times it is very minimalist. Uh, it didn't bother me as much as other ones. You know, I think the fact that even though there wasn't as much detail to the stuff, it was bright enough that I was able to get around that. And I think that that made it cool. But the one thing that I really enjoyed the most was the life that Anakin could have had. You know, when he goes in that that chamber and stuff, he's having these dreams and stuff. And I think, as we'll get to when we get into the spoiler part, I think that eventually these dreams are, are the work of someone else or someone else is tying in on this part of his psyche. But it was interesting to see his thoughts of what the future would have been. You know, he he would have had a kid named Jin, or as far as he was thinking, and and uh, Padme would have been the new Supreme Chancellor. Like that, the whole process of how his mind was working, and he was taking his son out to hunt Sith down on another planet. I was like, whoa, that's, okay, that would have been a cool little spinoff alternate reality. Come on, give me a Tales comic here. I so again, there were some really cool aspects of this comic that that surprised me, and I think the fact that when you know you read them a month apart and stuff, you forget about those things until they come back in like the third issue and stuff like that, and you're like, oh yeah, that's right, he was having these visions and stuff. So you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like you know, typical with a lot of the Dark Horse comics, it seems that the distance between when they come out seems to really hurt them. I mean, you know, I follow Marvel and stuff, and sometimes the Spider-Man lines and stuff are like every week you get one coming out, and it can feel a little overwhelming, but at the same time, the plot's moving really fast in that regard. And so, you know, when I sit down and I read all five of these together, it's like, whoa, you know, it's a totally different experience than when you sat there over, you know, five-month period, half a year practically reading these issues by issue. You know, you barely remember half of what's going on unless you're pulling them all out and rereading them, which I almost suggest you do. <laughs> I mean, anything else you add on that, Nathan, before we jump into spoiler territory? Just one thing, or I guess two quick things. One, we're going to talk about covers eventually. This is one of those series uh, like one of the Invasion arcs where it was on the 25th anniversary of Dark Horse Comics. So issue number one has a regular cover, but also has a 25th anniversary cover. Um, So if you're a collector, you might be out there looking for those. That was something that was readily available. It wasn't like it was some kind of limited edition or anything like that. But there are alternate versions of the cover for this. 
And also, this was also somewhat controversial before it came out. Uh, kind of like Star Wars Volume 2, of course, though with Star Wars Volume 2, it certainly was justified, all the, the fervor, it seems. But in this case, what we've got is Randy Stradley had talked about this series as being a series that would show Vader's greatest failure. And people went nuts on Dark Horse and even calling Hayden Blackman a bunch of names before the issues were ever out, saying, how dare you show Vader as a failure or focus on a failure of Vader? Doesn't that diminish the character? You're pulling him down, man, and just went crazy. Not a lot of fandom, but there was a very vocal, small subset of fandom who heard that Vader's greatest failure thing and went absolutely ape-sith on this. Um, and Randy Stradley makes a point of pointing that out in what would normally be the letters page at the end of the last issue, basically saying, yeah, joke's on them, because while Vader fails in one character's eyes, uh, it serves the broader goals of the Sith anyway, so it's not entirely a failure. I just, mm -hmm. I found it interesting. That was a, a hubbub at the time that I was completely oblivious to. Uh, it, it must have been happening somewhere other than where I frequented at the time. Well, it is. It's one of those things that's amazing about our fandom, you know, the things that we jump on and what becomes popular today, especially when it comes across the Twitter and Facebook feeds, you know. And it's just one of those things you never know what fandom's going to react to and the way they, they word it. I mean, you know, think about Brian Wood with the continuity be damned. <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> it's all right. I can reference this old love of Wedge, but screw Rogue Squadron. Yeah. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentient of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. Well, folks, we're going to look at this a little bit differently than we have some previous series. We're going to be looking at all the different Darth Vader series that we haven't hit so far. And because of that, we don't want to overload you necessarily with multiple, you know, hour and a half, two hour or whatever episodes to get through these quite as, as detailed as we usually do. So instead of going bit by bit within the story to go through and then give our comments on each bit. We're to hit each issue as a whole as far as summarizing and reminding folks of what's in it. And then we'll talk about lots of different aspects of the issue, but we'll do that sort of all at once after each issue. That might help speed us along a little bit uh, and make it so that this Darth Vader run, especially for those who weren't very keen on this series, it seems that fandom is very split on this series, especially after Ninth Assassin. Hopefully that'll be something that's good for everybody and doesn't alienate anybody within the audience in this case. So we start out with issue number one, and we have these flashback dream types of things. Uh, in this case, what we've got is a pregnant Padme after the events of Revenge of the Sith, if they had gone well, presumably. Uh, it's hard to say how well. Uh, where would the change point have been when it comes to the Infinities type of this? But we can get into that in a little while. But suffice to say, Padme's pregnant, the events of Revenge of the Sith are presumably over, and they are basically talking about their upcoming child. And sort of like what the life could be like that that child could lead. You know, him having the choice 
to be within the Jedi Council and so forth. Um, it refers to him as the Jedi who saved Mace Windu from Darth Sidious and brought the Sith to justice. So in a sense, Anakin is now the hero. And this is sort of a wish-fulfillment type of thing going on inside his head. Uh, as he is hanging in one of the, the coolest visages of this entire series, some of the best artwork that almost makes me think it had to have been drawn by somebody else, um, where he's basically hanging inside the cybernetic suite where they're upgrading and tweaking and reattaching his artificial limbs and his suits. Basically hanging there, uh, bare-chested, uh, basically in his cybernetic underwear or whatever, with, of course, no arms beyond where they were severed and no legs beyond where they were severed. And you see them going through to reattach the pieces very much like General Grievous back in Lair of Grievous in the Clone Wars. And he is called to meet with Palpatine, who has a mission for him. Basically, uh, Palpatine wants to keep Moff Tarkin, uh, Will Huff Tarkin, yes, his name is still Will Huff in the new story group canon, thank goodness, um, but Will Huff Tarkin basically needs to be kept as a loyal ally of the Emperor, and his son, Garrosh Tarkin, who previously did not exist anywhere within the continuity, brand new character, really only appears here, he and his Star Destroyer, and all the troops aboard it, the Lost Command, disappeared. And they're not sure why. And basically, Vader is tasked with seeking him out. Tarkin is not a fan of Vader being the one in charge of this mission, because he remembers back to the events of one of the, the Purge comics, where basically Vader, and he does this a lot, let his focus on wanting to take down the rest of the Jedi that may have escaped cloud his judgment in fulfilling other missions, and he doesn't want to see Vader distracted in a way that might get his son killed. To this end, they decide to send Captain Shale, another Imperial officer who is a friend of Garrosh Tarkin, with Vader to essentially be a second-in-command on this mission. They set out for the place where the Star Destroyer disappeared, the Atoan system, and it turns out it's basically just kind of a, at least the part that we see at first, it's a frozen world. Vader and his as you call them, Imperial Commandos now, including Captain or Commander Voka being in charge of them, take out a bunch of local insurgents who are speaking a language that they cannot comprehend. It's written in kind of an odd way within the lettering. It's kind of neat the way that they did that. And as they plow their way through, there's quite a few action sequences, but in the process of taking them down, they are interrupted. I mean, they've got people captured. They're going to interrogate. They're going to kill uh, Vader basically says, look, you know, execute anyone who's old enough to hold a weapon, burn the city, and the prisoners drown them. He, he hasn't gotten the answers that he wanted, so screw these people. The might of the Empire demands that they be wiped out, I guess, as a message to others. And the issue ends, the first issue ends, as the Lady Sorrow, who is an Atoan, the presumed leader of her people, though we'll find later it's sort of she's on her way to becoming leader of her people, shows up on what amounts to basically a... It's an old-style boat with that, that uses poles to, to move them across, kind of like you would see, say, in Venice. And she steps up, offering to help Vader, no force needed, to help Vader find whatever it is he seeks. And thus, issue one ends, mostly made up of combat. Dun, dun, dun. 
you know, I, I thought the pacing was really good with the first one. The thing that threw me off was the ending. You know, you get to that high priest, you're like, wait, wait, what's going on? Who is this? And, of course, you know, now after watching Clone Wars Season 6, I'm like, priestess? Wait, what kind of? No, she couldn't be that type of priestess. Of course, you know, she's not. Uh, but there are a couple things, you know, again, getting back to the art, I, I didn't I didn't mind the art. I, in fact, the the quasi-changingness of Vader, I kind of dug what it did for the character. Wait, um, wait, let, let me give you one that will completely change your view, possibly on the artwork. Check out the first page of Vader walking in to meet the Emperor and look at Vader's face. He looks like a freaking character from DuckTales. Yeah, there there are angles that they take with the helmet from time. That's one of them. Uh, and there's, I think it might be an issue three. There's another one where they come at it from a top angle down. The the vocabber there, you know, it's like he's got the the classic. You see the one triangle. Uh, you know, I think of the stylization ones where the bottom of the triangle comes down from his mouth. This one, they really focus on the fact that there's another triangle mirrored to that right below it. And and some of those angles, like that one, the one that you're pointing out, really just, yeah, there, there are times where that really falls apart. I think for me, the part about it that I really enjoy the most, though, is seeing him outside the helmet. Um, and, and that's something this issue gives us quite a bit, which, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's some people out there that are, are going to cry foul that, you know, he probably couldn't be living outside the helmet. But that first scene where you're seeing him kind of, you know, hanging in the chamber and stuff, you know, I, I love the way that that works. You know, you got to figure that the whole room is probably, you know, set so he can breathe inside there. Everything in there with him is robots and stuff. I don't know. I like the way it's drawn. I like the look of his face. I like the, the thought of the fact that, you know, he's just this broken shell of what he was supposed to be. The fact that he's using that fantasy life dreams to, you know, basically keep him sane. He's hanging there and he's just like, the last thing he says in the dream is, he says, I have to go now. She says, when will you be back soon? Seeing you is the only thing that keeps me sane. And then it goes, you know, to him hanging in the chamber and he's got his eyes closed. He's like, please keep me sane. And the robot's like, Lord Vader, did you say something? How oh, much longer? And he's like, begin the assembly now. Keep me sane, my love. And then it engages the neural simulators. You know, I, I just, I don't know. There was that something about that relationship and the fact that, you know, he's still struggling with that. You know, later in one of the later issues, you know, she'll talk about it as well. And I don't know, for me, it's just really cool to see that aspect of it. You know, he's just like, when he sees her later, he's like, Anakin's dead. He died with you. And she's like, I'm going to leave. I just, the relationship there that he's having in his head with her is something that I feel, I think it needs to be, you know, I mean, I would think at some point as, you know, with legends and stuff, or as we move forward with the new story canon, if they're going to go back and focus more on Vader, you know, it's something that you need to have. You need to have that regret. You need to have that remorse, the hauntingness of what he's being. I mean, that's what he's being right now. He's being haunted by the memory of the life he could have had. And, you know, at some point that's got to fade away with his hate and stuff. But there, I think it's integral at this point that, you know, he's still struggling with that and that it's still a part of who he is. Um, you know, granted later, by the time, you know, you get to re return of the Jedi, I would think at that point that most of that's been purged out. And that's part of what Luke's reminding Vader of is that, you know, that never left you, dude. You know, there's that core of you in there, whether you want to deny it or not. So I, I really I, I don't know some about that draws me to that part. Uh, I did like the fact that they referenced, I believe it was what you said, Purge, but it was the third Purge one, I believe, right? The Tyrant's Fist, uh, the Octavon uh, uh, 8 or 12, whatever it was there. The Commander Voka. Actually, it's uh, not, uh, no, not Tyrant's, it's, uh, it's the Hidden Blade, I believe. Oh, is it the Hidden Blade? Yes. 
Now, with Commander Voka, this makes me question if the 501st has so many brigades and such, or if at this point Vader's just accustomed to his troopers being seen as fodder. Uh, you know, I mean, we no longer have Commander Apo. Uh, Captain Rex is long gone. We don't know whatever happened to him. But, you know, I've always thought about that. You know, I mean, I love seeing him walking with the clones and stuff still. And, and, and there's times where I'm like, you know, did the clones ever find out? You know, we always find out you know, so-and-so found out, you know, and, and such and such over here. He found out that Vader was Anakin and this guy found out. But wouldn't it be crazy if the 501st actually knew that they were still serving under Commander Skywalker or General Skywalker but they were totally okay with just calling him Darth Vader now, you know, <laughs> like, but then there's the other side of it too. The, the fact that like, okay, if they didn't know, and he's just so willing to sacrifice troopers and stuff. And I mean, you know, I mean, if that was the case, you know, that he was just sending the troopers in and stuff, could we at some point within the Canon universe, see a story where he sends Rex off to die? You know, I mean, I, I go off on these side ponders as I'm going along and stuff and just seeing Rex or not Rex, but, uh, uh, it must be Voka uh, standing next to him. There's there's that scene where Vader's cutting up the people and stuff. And I love the fact that they look like they're wearing the Republic uh, commando uniforms. You know, that, to me that was really cool. I dug a lot of the the costuming and stuff. So I think that may have also been what helped me overlook the uh, the art. You know, and the art was shifting a lot, but I think the action was moving so fast and moving me along with it that I never got caught up in the eddies of the of the craziness of the art at times. So that worked out for me in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, the art, again, the art was kind of a hit to me. The action sequences, pretty cool, but at the same time kind of felt sort of run-of-the-mill. Nothing really stood out to me in the action sequences in this particular part. There are some cool action moments later, but in this one it just kind of felt like ho-hum, regular run-of-the-mill. Oh, look, Vader's going in with his troopers against a local insurgency or a local resistance group. Yeah, they're dead. Next. But it did have some cool moments. Uh, the whole dream sequence thing, or vision sequence, whatever you want to call it, is, is imagining what life would be like. Looking at it, my best guess, and they've never really said this for sure, but my best guess would be that this would have to assume that basically Anakin finds out that Sidious, or that Palpatine is Sidious, right? You know, I will, I will soon discover the truth of all this with that poorly clunky written line of dialogue. Heads back to the Jedi Temple, tells Mace... Mace and the other Jedi go off to arrest Palpatine, and everybody but Mace winds up immediately getting killed. Anakin is asked to wait. He waits. He leaves in that DC-0052 intergalactic speeder, by the way, the one that I did some of the, uh, some, about half uh, of the background for, for what's the story. And he shows up, and presumably this time, instead of stepping up and cutting Mace's arm off, he takes Mace's advice, you know, he is the traitor, and kills Palpatine. And in doing so, saves the galaxy from the Sith. Uh, it makes sense in saying he saved Mace Windu from Darth Sidious, brought the Sith to justice. Um, it would seem like that is the moment at which it splits, at, at which this new uh, vision or this new parallel reality, if you want to even call it that, this new imaginary reality exists. Although... Agreed. Given that this is something that he himself is creating in his head, there is something that will pop up later that doesn't ring true with it. Um, if this really is him using his own imagination of what he believes happened, for instance, like him killing her, um, which he did, but she lost the will to live, so partly her freaking fault. Um, but basically, there's one thing that we're going to see that kind of Seems like it's not coming from his mind. 
somehow because it contradicts uh, something that the novelization did very well as far as something with the children. But nicely done beyond that little quirk that we're going to wind up seeing. Love the artwork and the idea of seeing him inside the chamber. The artwork for the rest of this issue is on par with the rest of this series, which is mostly for me. But when he's in that chamber, it is so good. Again, it might as well be a different artist. It is so well done and so different, frankly, than the entire rest of this series. Uh, one thing that stood out to me, it's a brief moment in this first issue, is that when Vader walks in, he's summoned to Palpatine. When he walks in, Palpatine's instruction is, Lord Vader, kneel before me. And he just stands there for a second. Lord Vader, and then he kneels and asks, you know, the 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 line that has become the Star Wars, you know, chorus or whatever you call it, refrain that we hear so often within Star Wars now. What is thy bidding, my master? But at first, he's not planning to kneel, and it's cool to see Vader at this point being resistant. Now, it's kind of like Leia being all broken up over what happened to Alderaan and how she deals with it. There are a lot of stories told right after A New Hope, including Star Wars Volume 2, in which it seems like she's completely bipolar. She's completely broken down by it. She's having to deal with it. She's managed to move on and come to grips with it. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth because these stories were written in completely different times in the real world, and everybody seemed to want to deal with the same issue. And what you wind up with is a patchwork continuity right after A New Hope in which it goes back and forth. These stories for After Revenge of the Sith, for the most part, have been handled in comic form. And for the most part, were written within, say, a five-year stretch at most. And yet, this is another thing that we are seeing. How resistant is Vader? You look at some of the stories set prior to this within the span of the continuity, uh, and certain the Legends continuity, because this isn't part of story group canon or anything. Um, and yeah, Vader seems like he keeps wanting to go off on his own, but it certainly doesn't seem like he would have had the mechanical, robotic, cybernetic balls to do this and not bow in those earlier stories. It seems like that's something that perhaps should have been a scene set right after Revenge of the Sith, unless we are to assume that the reason why in those earlier stories He's simply bowing, and here he seems resistant is because he was just having that daydream in which he was the hero and things were better. Uh, without that being the reason for him not bowing, it seems out of character with his previous chronological appearances, some of which were written before, some of which were written after. But it's a cool moment. Well, and to go, I mean, an another point of view on that, another reason why he could be so reluctant is because of the fact that Tarkin's in the room. You know, maybe he's hesitant to kneel in front of Tarkin. You know, I'm not just his lackey. I'm not just his apprentice, you tool. You know, I mean, because there's a, an animosity between those two, too. I mean, uh, that's something I could see Vader totally doing, you know. Uh, I'll bow to you, Palpatine, but you ain't going to make me bow in front of this piece up. <laughs> What's odd, though, is the animosity between the two seems to be something that maybe meant to stem out of this, or maybe at some point Tarkin finds out about Vader's role in the death of his son, uh, or he blames Vader just like he blames the galaxy. Um, we'll get to this when we get to the very end of this of this series and how this is meant to affect the Tarkin character and how effectively I think it does that. Mm -hmm. But remember, in the Clone Wars, and granted, a lot of the episodes of the Clone Wars that dealt with this weren't 
around yet. Uh, this was being published in 2011. Yeah. Um, but they're kind of buddy-buddy by the time we see them in some of the later episodes of The Clone Wars. They have very different views and start to see some common ground on a few things in the Citadel arc of The Clone Wars. And then by the time they meet again, as we're getting towards the end of the series, they seem like they're in many ways kind of seeing eye-to-eye on at least how to run the galaxy. And yet here's you know Tarkin not quite fitting that. But again, they wouldn't have known that because those episodes weren't out yet. Uh, speaking of oh. things that weren't out yet, though, um, I know Star Wars doesn't tend to do flashbacks much, but I do like the idea, as you were saying, that maybe something that Luke is is helping him remember in Return of the Jedi is the life that he had wanted. I would almost say that if you can keep in, in your head the scenes of this series of that life that was a, a road that could have been traveled but wasn't, keep that in mind when you hear Vader do the no no, and then throws Palpatine, and maybe if you dislike the addition of those no's, which I think are all right, um, maybe it'll be a little bit easier to take the no's because you can imagine what's going through his head and fit it more with Anakin thinking of that time because Anakin certainly would have been a no, no type of guy because at best, Anakin was kind of a whiny little biatch at times. <laughs> yeah, well, and you brought up something too with the whole Tarkin angle. I mean, this could be the moment that puts Tarkin at odds with Vader. Uh, I truly, though, kind of think that Anakin, though, uh, inside Vader's costume, is already mad at Tarkin for what Tarkin had a hand in with pushing Ahsoka out of the order. I think there's some animosity still there from Vader's side, but Tarkin doesn't have a clue as to where it's coming from. So, you know, if they ever were to, I mean, granted, Legends probably isn't going to go on, but if they were to ever tie something like that in, that would have been a great motivator for Tarkin to really hate Vader, though. You've got a point on that. Yep, but again, something that unfortunately we hadn't seen yet, so it was kind of a, it's all, it's all retconning at this point, frankly. Um, all right, so we move into issue number two of Darth Vader and the Lost Command. We are in the Ghost Nebula. Hayden Blackman likes Ghost, apparently. Uh, we're in the Ghost Neb- Nebula over Atoa, and we jump a little bit. We had last seen her showing up, uh, Lady Sorrow showing up and basically saying, hey, I'll give you whatever help you need. And now what we've got is Vader has been experimenting on the prisoners. Apparently, they don't have hearts. Instead, it's like lots of different parts of their body work like hearts, and it gives them an advantage in terms of reflexes and that sort of thing. So they may look human. They're humanoid. But they're not human. And Vader is experimenting on them, and he'll later explain that part of that is because the Empire needs to know about its potential enemies uh, so that they can create the most effective weapons, biological and everything else, to use against them. But it's a little bit odd to jump straight into that scene. But they're doing the experimentation. Uh, He's having them take out the lungs, for instance, of one particular person. And... Shale shows up with Sorrow. Shale does not agree with what Vader is doing at this point, quite frankly. Um, and at this point, she's trying to make a deal, essentially. Uh, her deal that apparently she's mentioned to Vader already, it's repeated in this scene, but of course, if it was said the first time, it was said off-screen, off-page, so to speak, that she will help him find Garrosh Tarkin, but in exchange... She wants Vader, and by extension the Empire, to declare her the queen of the Ghost Nebula. And Shale is okay with this. 
She's like, you know, we've given moths power before over entire systems, and in fact, there have been men who were lesser men than she is in terms of her character that we've made into moths. So why not just give her this thing that, frankly, you know, we might have given her anyway? But Vader, at this point, is at least somewhat resistant to it. He decides he's going to meditate on it. And we see Shale essentially countermand Vader's orders. Uh, Vader had wanted more done with these prisoners, and Shale says, no, don't continue with the dissection, take the bodies to the incinerator, and basically are putting these people out of their misery. As Vader goes to meditate, we get our next, not really flashback, our next vision of what could have been, which is basically Palpatine and an older son, a now-born child of Anakin and Padme, as Padme becomes the new Supreme Chancellor of the Republic. Although, a couple of little oddities in this, she does talk about the idea of her telling the Senate that they need a Jedi to lead them. Um, interesting to hear Padme, of all people, say that, and of course in the Legends continuity that had happened in the ancient past. Uh, in this case, Anakin's, you know, no, you're the best person for the job, and she does become the Supreme Chancellor. The child, for his part, we're going to come back to this, because this is one of the issues I have if this is meaning to come from Anakin's mind. The son is named Jin, and, well, like I said, we'll, we'll come back to it. Son is named Jin, but in coming out of this, uh, Vader is thinking about, you know, how she would be saying to him, I could never have done this without you. And saying, I love you. And he has a no moment and busts himself out of his sort of sarcophagus thing in which he is sleeping slash meditating. He goes to visit Lady Sorrow, agrees to her terms, if she swears loyal to the Emperor. And she says, yeah, certainly she will. She'll even build temples in their honor if they should so desire. And she leads them to the Star Destroyer that Garrosh Tarkin had come in. And it is beaten all to crap up in space. Vader takes out uh, one of his Jedi Interceptors, or his you know, dark-colored Jedi Interceptor. Some uh, V-Wings go along with him, and they go to investigate the wreckage, only to wind up being fired upon by a Toan insurgent, rebel, whatever you want to call them, resistance fighter ships. They wind up taking out the ships, with the exception of one last one. And Anakin slash Vader pulls kind of what he did to guide Obi-Wan into the Invisible Hand in Revenge of the Sith, in that he puts his wing up against the last of the, the damaged Freedom Fighter vessels and causes it to crash, allowing him to then go to the two crew members, kill one, and question the other, take him as a prisoner. At which point, plans start to change. Uh, they won. Uh, it's sort of an intercutting scenes here. You got Boca and Shale and Sorrow talking about the planet in this system that they believe that Tarkin has gone to, thanks to the questioning of the prisoner. It's this planet where basically instead of having oceans, it's tar pits. Really a hellish kind of place. Meanwhile, Vader is talking with Palpatine, and he's basically come up with a plan that, you know... Maybe we should let Garrosh Tarkin die. Maybe, instead of trying to save him as a way of making sure that Wilhuff Tarkin remains loyal, let's have him die, but find a way to blame it on the insurgents, blame it on those resisting the Empire, 
use that to harden him and make him full of rage, and then he could be tempered into an even more deadly instrument for the Empire. And Palpatine is willing to go along with this. Now remember, now remember, Shale is a friend of Garrosh Tarkin, so Shale isn't going to go along with this. This is going to be something that Vader has to sort of keep to himself. But now what you've got is two separate goals for the two leaders of this mission. One wants Garrosh to die, one wants to save him. Either way, they've got to go to this tar planet, and they prepare essentially uh, some walkers and ground troops ordered by Commander Voka to be a distraction, while Vader himself is going to carry out a sneak attack as we end Issue 2. Yeah, I, I actually, I think Issue 2 is probably one of my more favorite ones. The plot starts moving fast, which was, for me, you know, at first I was kind of like, reading the single issues, I was lost. But on the second one going through, I found that more enjoyable. The pacing of it was really good. Uh, when you get to the space scene and stuff, like, I don't know, there was very little words used, and yet I was able to follow along and enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, you know, Vader torturing the citizens, removing the lungs and stuff, I thought that was brilliant, added to the whole, you know, hey, whoa, what's he doing to Leia and Han in there? You know, I mean, Vader likes to torture people, yo. So now you can kind of see that in action. Han kind of got off lucky, I think. <laughs> Lungs intact. Uh, the the fact that Padme in the in the vision was going to be making the Jedi Order obsolete, um, I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, in the way you know, like you had mentioned, the fact that she had said to the Senate that the Jedi needs to lead it. But I, I thought it was kind of interesting because, like, I got the impression that she had told the Senate that, but they instead chose her. You know, she's like, the galaxy is done with politicians. I told the Senate that we need a Jedi leading us. Anakin, what if I make the wrong decisions? And he's like, you won't. And I kind of like get the idea that the Senate was like, no, no, we're putting you in charge. Even though she was like, no, you should put a Jedi in charge. You should put a Jedi in charge. And then as they go out, even even young Jin, he's like, you do realize that if she brings peace to the entire galaxy, she'll make the Jedi Order obsolete. And Anakin's like, we can only hope. <laughs> I don't know. I, I like the way that that worked out. Uh, now, one thing, though, I, I have to ask is, was it an air for the Resistance to take out that Star Destroyer through sabotage versus taking it over and using it? I mean, as we're going to learn later in the plot, it's like, that might have come in handy to have a Star Destroyer at your disposal. <laughs> I mean, they're really selling, you know, the plot that they're they're working on right now, you know, that Tarkin's son's been kidnapped and all this. But, again, I question, you know, that might not have been the best choice for them if, you know, this priestess wants to be setting up herself as a queen and all that, you know, you would think having a Star Destroyer on hand would be helpful. Makes me wonder if the idea here was that by scuttling the Star Destroyer uh, and you and like, presumably attacking the Star Destroyer and capturing Tarkin first, and then we'll find getting him to basically join her, uh, if, that, if part of that was to make it appear to any Imperials who showed up that, ah, they're dead, they're gone, you don't need to look any further... And that True. way it would be a, a nice cover for them. Uh, two things stand out to me with this issue. Aside from the fact that as cool as that space battle is, the artwork does it no justice whatsoever. The artwork is extremely plain and lacking of details throughout that entire yeah. sequence. Um, one, though, is the whole thing with the vision. Assuming this vision comes from Vader, and there is a point at which we will find that Lady Sorrow seems to be, if not influencing them, certainly being able to use his visions or dreams of what could have been against him later. That one of the gifts she can give is forgiveness. It's, it's, it's a whole issue we'll get into with issue number five. But 
you got to figure that since a lot of this is happening, the first one, for instance, is happening while he's still on Coruscant, that at least some of this had no influence coming from her. And even if it is coming from her, in order to know what he would have wanted, she has to be reading his mind. Yes, you would figure. So, one, why, in what appears to be the end of Revenge of the Sith, why is Anakin's hair still short? Anakin's hair wasn't short in Revenge of the Sith. Is this a case of, well, it's the Clone Wars, and it seems like we got his hair short here and long here and all that stuff, and, well, the Gindy Tartakovsky series shows him being knighted with short hair, but he apparently was given the ability to be knighted in, Je in Jedi Trial where he had long hair, but, ah, wait, who knows what the hell's happening with it now because of the Clone Wars cartoon series. Ah, screw it, short hair looks cooler. Uh, or what the deal was with that, but that's a minor quibble. That could be anything. That could be just, you know, well, I killed Palpatine and I felt all dirty inside and I just went and cut my hair. Okay. Uh, I looked in the mirror and realized I looked like a child creeper. Exactly, exactly. I saw myself, I did the Spaceballs thing and saw myself at the end of Return of the Jedi staring at my own children like this and realized I looked like a creepy pedophile. Um, but speaking of, ooh, that's bad. Speaking of pedophiles, speaking of children, ooh, bad transition. Um, <laughs> the fact that the son's name is Jin here and is a boy, clashes with the novelization of Revenge of the Sith, because one of the plot points within Revenge of the Sith was how excited Anakin was to have a child. And even near the end of it, as Padme is about to die, she says that Anakin always expected the child to be a girl. So if he expected the child, and he didn't know there were twins, how he can't sense two life forces in there, who knows? But he expected it to be one child, and he expected it to be a girl. So question number one, why isn't this child a girl instead of a boy? Is that just the chauvinistic male thing of saying, well, of course he has a son. Strapping man needs a strapping young child to carry on as another strapping young man. And two, we learn through, and I don't think it's just the novelization, definitely the novelization, but I think it was elsewhere too, that the names Luke and Leia, were names that basically Padme and Anakin chose for the child, with Luke being if it's a boy, Leia being if it's a girl, and when it wound up being twins, they gave the boy name to the boy, girl name to the girl. So they used both of them. But that means that prior to Revenge of the Sith, and prior to this story, in Anakin's mind, if the child's a boy, it's Luke. If the child's a girl, it's Leia. And yet, here's a child who's a boy whose name is Jin. Well, that's so, because this represents something that could have happened. But if this is coming from his mind and the, the turning point is that Revenge of the Sith turned out differently, unless we assume that at some point late in the pregnancy, before the children were born, they changed their mind about what the name of the child would be, it's still not consistent. And I'm wondering if the reason they called the child Jin is because if they had called the child Luke... Anybody who hadn't necessarily read the novelization and realized that this is a name that they picked out before, it wasn't just Padme pulling names out of her butt while she's sitting there losing the will to live and everything, um, would have said, wait a second, how does he know the child's name is Luke? Oh my god, he learned Luke's name even earlier and yet somehow didn't go after him, etc., etc., etc. I think it was a name that was changed just for the, the convenience of it. But when you look back at, for instance, the Revenge of the Sith novelization, that to me makes that film so much stronger than... It is by itself. It is an inconsistency for him to think of the child as a boy and to think of the child as Jin instead of Luke. Just saying, not a huge issue with the story, but that 
level of knowledge that I've got for uh, things surrounding Revenge of the Sith always mm-hmm. has me kicked out of the story for an instant here because, I mean, this is written in 2011. This is six years after Revenge of the Sith. You would think that that would be something that they would have carried through with instead of just completely abandoning it and going with this different male child with a different name. You're probably right about the whole spoiling the name Luke and having people scratch their head. You know, an in-universe way of looking at it is it could be the Force stepping in and, and, you know, showing him that, you know, this is things that could have been different. Or even so, you know, like you were saying, he was thinking it was a girl. This could be the Force kind of being like, hey, you should be thinking boy. There's a boy out there, you know. And yet at the same time, the Force saying, but we're not going to tell you his real name. You can't find him, so screw you. There you go. It's the will of the Force. Everything is the will of the Force. The Force moves in mysterious ways. The catch-all explanation for everything unexplainable in the EU. Um, The other thing, the second thing, is Vader's intention here and the idea that if you kill Garrosh Tarkin, this is what's going to make Tarkin into who he is. And I think that actually works really well. In fact, I think it works better now than it did, at least with Legends continuity, than it did prior to the Clone Wars cartoon series. Because we didn't really mm-hmm. get a whole lot of him in his early life within the Legends continuity. We learned about him. We didn't see him a lot, actually, in stories. So we've got this sense of Tarkin always being this very pragmatic guy, this guy that was always about the idea of fear. It was all about you know the ends justify the means, and that the Tarkin doctrine of rule through fear was just something that this guy... I mean, he lived with his entire life. That's just who he is. And we get the idea of him being pragmatic, but not nearly that deep into the darker edges of it in what we get with him in the Clone Wars. And we see him sort of tempering his view and his views growing over time as we get towards the end of the Clone Wars towards Revenge of the Sith. And I have to wonder if this is the the thing that changes him from, you know, the ends justify the means within reason to the ends justify the means including let's blow up freaking planets because there's a huge Mm -hmm. gap between the ends justify the means kill thousands or kill millions to get this goal versus wipe out an entire planet of billions for this goal and create something that lets you rove around just wiping out planets one after another after another if there is a moral ethical mental gap between those two concepts, between the scales of destruction you're willing to go with, then this is a great way to push him into being that darker character. Although, that then goes back to the whole Tarkin Doctrine thing. The Tarkin Doctrine coming after this makes sense if this is what changes him into that darker character. But I find it interesting that for a while there, they use the Tarkin Doctrine as part of the background of the Death Star that he gets the job aboard the Death Star because of the Tarkin Doctrine, but the Tarkin Doctrine also affects the way that Palpatine looks at the Death Star project. But of course, now we know, thanks to Revenge of the Sith, it was already under construction based on those Geonosian designs as of Revenge of the Sith, and we already see Tarkin aboard the Star Destroyer taking them to it. So there's a question of, you know, maybe what we've got here is a guy who was willing to follow orders and was going to be put in command of the Death Star, or has seen and has knowledge of the Death Star project, but it's this that wipes away any doubts from him about being able to use it. Again, it's another one of those things where we're basically just trying to extrapolate off the page into some psychological development for the character because of the order in which these stories are being written chronologically versus when they were published is kind of out of whack, as most of Star Wars is, but 
I like that. I think that now that we've seen the Clone Wars cartoon series, this series' effect on Tarkin is even more discernible and interesting. No, I mean, you lay it out there in, in a great perspective. I mean, you know, heck yeah, blow that planet up. The Resistance took my son. Like, <laughs> yeah, I can see why he would have a major hate on for the Resistance after this series is over. Plenty of plenty of opportunity there to, to, to take a already cold and heartless man and just make him merciless. Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm feeling it, man. <laughs> He's a cold-hearted snake. Ooh, he don't play by rule. Anyway. Sorry, uh, bad, was that 90s flashback? Maybe late 80s flashback? Yeah. We pick up now with issue number three, and we're going to be able to hit about half of it here in this episode, and then we will pick up in another episode and hit the rest of this in the last two issues. We start out with the walkers down on the surface of the tar planet, uh, going after the resistance fighters and trying to find and rescue, or allow to die, Garrosh Tarkin. And as the ground troops are essentially sacrificed as a distraction... Vader zips in with a gunship, a Republic gunship of the style that we saw in the Clone Wars, and is able to get down onto the ground into the facility where they believe that, that Tarkin's people are likely being held. In fact, Shale even drops down in there in his black, cool, uh, Storm Commando-style scout trooper armor, carrying Lady Sorrow with him in his arms. Vader goes through, basically killing people, questioning, killing throw them into the tar and let them burn. Question, kill, uh, throw them into the tar and let them burn. Hey, question, throw them into the tar and let them burn and be killed that way. Just, you know, just basically picking them off. Again, no concern for any of the lives that he's taking as long as it gets him to the goal that he wants. And eventually, we get to a point where they've, they've found what they think is a prison cell where Tarkin and his people are supposedly being held. At least that's according to the schematics and the information that Lady Sorrow gave to them. Vader opens up the door, uh, well, cuts it open. He goes Qui-Gon Jinn style and sticks his blade into the wall and then does the whole cutting a circle thing to knock it open. And instead of Admiral Garrosh Tarkin or his crew, there's his protocol droid, Tarkin's protocol droid, who says, My master? He was taken away nearly a week ago. But he left this gift, should anyone come for him. It's a little green lighted box, which turns out to be an explosive. And as we end this episode, at least, albeit not the issue, Vader calls, get down, leans over and cradles the explosive to his own chest, and it explodes. Kaboom! Beyond the film's cliffhanger time. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, I, I again, the pacing on this one, when I was reading it all together, the pacing really struck me as, as how fast it was moving along, but I felt like I was caught up in the currents. You know, I felt like I was going on a rafting ride of Awesome Fader adventure at this point. And, you know, you start out in the AT-ATs and stuff, and you get the sense of the fact that they're wanting to keep Lord Vader happy. But at the same time, you know, the drivers are like, we've lost one of the rear rotors. We're crippled. No, no, we can make it to the next island. Too late, sir. Brace for impact. And then they show up from another point of view where, you know, after the front of the thing is crashing to the ground, the tar is coming up through the viewport. I like the way that they twisted the view on that and stuff. And, you know, again, getting that aspect of you see the interaction, not just of Vader with the troops, but the way the troops interact to Vader's commands and stuff. I mean, the fact that the 501st just 
is not quaking under Vader at this point. You know, they're still like, yeah, we're Vader's fist. Yeah, we're awesome. And it's like Shale, you know, Shale had an issue with what Vader was doing with the troops. You know, I mean, he's just like, uh, how's he put it? Another squad gone. And Vader's like, that will be the last. The Atoans believe they have escaped. They will not be prepared for us. I hope you're right. We're in range. Follow me. And then he jumps off. You know, I'm just... Again, that aspect of Vader's leading and never following, and and while Shale kind of represents the the drag your feet troopers, I get back to that aspect of you know it's crazy to watch that the troopers under Vader in the final first seem willing to do whatever they can to make Vader happy, whereas other troopers are kind of more like you know they'll they'll drag their feet like Shale, you know his group they're you get the impression they're against Vader, and as we get later on, you'll see why, but. I, I, I constantly, I want to see more interactions with Vader and his troops. And usually when we see him, we see him in, in scenes like this where the pacing's moving really fast and, you know, Vader's barking orders. But I want to see some more interactions and stuff. You know, if Rebels ever decides to bring Vader into the show, I think that would be a really cool angle for them to play. You know, because there's a lot of people talking, oh, you won't see Vader because that would kind of diminish Vader's character. But you could bring Vader in as like a big bad for a villain, you know, and have him, you know, mainly seen interacting with his troopers. And you could still have him represent the villain. And yet not diminish him in any way. You can make the troops the proxy for him. You know, oh, look, there's Vader's 501st. Oh, Vader must be near. But you never have Vader actually show up, you know, and then have Vader dealing with his troops. I think that that would be a really cool opportunity to see why they are willing to be fodder for him. Because, I mean, that, you know, when when Shale goes, another squad gone. And Vader's like, that will be the last. It's like Vader to me seems like he's willing to just throw away the troopers as many as he needs to get the job done. But there's a, a sense of pride that he knows that his troopers are going to get the job done. And I'd like to know why. I mean, you know, again, getting back to that, do they know it's Anakin? They're willing to, to sacrifice anything because he's the last great Jedi and they're the only ones that know it? Or, you know, what's the driving force for the clones here? Is it just the programming? Or is there an extra doctrine in, like, the next version of the clones where you're going to do whatever Vader says? You know, I mean, I don't know. There's that aspect of it that gets me all excited. When you get to the droid uh, doing his thing, though, I mean, that was... I think at that point I realized things weren't as they appeared through this series, and it made me stop and go, "Wait, what is going on?" You know, I remember in the in the single reads, I was completely lost at this point. But going through all together, it was like, "Okay, things are getting really good now." I mean, is he going to survive? You know, I mean, the, the way the explosion goes and the way he gets engulfed in the flames and stuff, it's kind of like he has that moment of, you know, "Everybody, get down! I'll save you." And then you're like, at the same time, you're like, "Okay, has he had enough upgrades? Is he going to survive this?" I I don't know. I mean. For the show, it makes a great place to to end this episode. Uh, I love you know that aspect of it and the art there. It works. The 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 bright glow of the bomb going off and stuff. You're just like, oh man, did Vader just get incinerated? As spoiler warning, he doesn't. Apparently, Vader is built out of whatever they build humans out of in the Michael Bay Transformers universe. You can throw him around like a rag doll, <laughs> and he'll be okay. Or in this case blow up a bomb right by his life support controls in his chest, and he'll be all right. He'll be fine. But we'll, we'll deal with that in the next episode. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Maybe we'll find out later why. <laughs> because the plot demanded it. Fuzzy. 
Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always highly encourage you to leave us a review there on iTunes while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films on the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there be sure to like our facebook page it's one of the best ways to interact with us it's our own home one if you will not only can you post comments to us about the show we love interacting with you fellow fans so if you have any star wars legends eu questions out there or you have a comment about a past episode fire off you can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com now lastly before we go we want to mention to you our audible trial if you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport you get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors, they have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Legends universe or any other genre out there without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one whole year, with no questions asked. Hey, then why did you hate it? They don't even care. You just be like, dude, I did not care for Han Solo in this book. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that Vader was intentionally wanting to look like he was making a duck face in issue one. Or the odds that Luke's middle name is Jin. Now, with several years to die, to die. Now, with several years to die. <laughs> to jive, jive, jive. I'm jive talking. <laughs> you know what you get when you've got a separate penciler, a separate, uh, a separate, a separate person. I can't talk. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films. Nope, that's not right. Okay, I gotta say it, I guess this whole block winds up in the bloopers, but as soon as you said, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, that's not right, I'm thinking, that's right, that's the show, what's not? It took me a second to figure out what the heck you were saying wasn't right, so we're both off today. <laughs> I just woke up, that's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Sash, is that, what's his name? What's his name? I, keep getting his, I keep getting his name confused. Shale. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to I Looked Away and Now Can't Find My Spot. Damn. All right. It's all your fault, Whistler. It's all your fault. I was reaching for you. Now we just want to mention to you our Audible trial. That's it. We just want to mention it. Yeah. We have one. If you know anything about the last episode, you might be able to find it. Is that I, Wyatt? It was that Wyatt? That was Wyatt. <laughs> 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 That's what it totally sounded like. You'll, you'll hear it on the recording. It sounded like you said, Erp. 
Uh, probably I was expecting more to come out. Like, really? That was it? Like, beat on the chest or something. <coughs> That's right. Mm -hmm. No. Did you know I killed young Tarkin, the one who went astray? I dropped the roof upon his head, and now he's dead, I'm laughing to this day. We cannot be best buddies, we disagree on whether he had to die. Did you know I killed young Tarkin? Yes, I killed your son, now Tarkin. There you go. He had to die. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I killed the little but don't worry. He didn't exist in continuity before this, and now he won't exist afterwards. I... 